So we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2 for our sermon text. We're in our Advent series, calling Jesus, calling it Jesus' Dysfunctional Family. And that's Matthew chapter 1. You have all this whole list of names. Uh, and you're going to find liars and adulterers and scandal and murder and polygamy, abuse of power, all kinds of dysfunction and drama. <laughs> it's, it's the history of grace. And so we're, we're looking at God's family, what he's done in the past, to teach us about what he's done in Christ. And this morning we're going to look at Rahab. She's going to help us about this peace that the angels sing about. So it's Joshua chapter 2. We'll read the whole chapter. Let's read it together. This is God's word. It says, And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, some men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water as a Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And then afterward you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. And behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. 
And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. And they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. And then the two men returned, and they came from the hills and passed over, and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. (laughs) And this is God's word. It's completely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this gift of peace that you give us in Christ. I pray you would help us see that, how, how miraculous your peace is, even, in, even here from Rahab in the midst of a, a conflict. And so we pray that you would send your spirit to teach us, to open our eyes, to see ourselves as we are, but also to see and hear the good news, that we would taste and see that you are good. So Holy Spirit, come and teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so we're, we're looking at peace, and we often think of peace as a time where uh, people come together, where people who were at hostility with one another, who didn't get along, who, um, well, the, the opposite of what's about to happen in Jericho, right? That's what we think of peace, of all different types of people living in harmony with one another, which is um, a very far cry from how the world actually works. Especially you think about families, as we've been talking about it, and I've gotten some feedback from some of you from last week, and the, the illustration from National Lampoons and their crazy cousin Eddie. You know, we, <laughs> we all have people we struggle to get along with. And so I'm hoping that Rahab, as we look at this, is going to help us see the, the miraculous power of peace that we get in Christ. And to, to humanize our, our enemies, the people we don't get along with. Right. And so... And tell you a story. Before Bethany and I went to Mississippi, right before we moved, it was about two, two, three weeks, I think. We we went to a missions training. We went to a week-long candidate orientation with African Limb Mission. That was our plan at that point, before school. And you know, it's, it's all kinds of. Are you actually called to go to this place? And one of the days they talked about that was very humbling was the the day of risk assessment. I, I mean, when we were done, we were saying, you know, it's all the different ways you could die serving Jesus in another country. It's very sobering. And part of the process for us involved watching a, f- a video of a funeral of two missionaries, two American missionaries from northern Uganda, who were killed in 2004. Uh, their names were Warren and Donna Pett. They were farmers from Wisconsin. They sold their farm, and they went to, to teach farming and, and share the gospel these folks in the, the most northern part of Uganda. It's the most, one of the most Muslim parts of the country. It's about 97% Muslim. And what happened was is a gang of, of men came with, with guns, and they, there wasn't any bargaining. They were just assassinated. Their, their, the compound was burned. Nobody really knows why, but the assumption was it was Muslim extremists uh, taking out the Christians. It's sobering. You know, as we were watching this, I mean, 
the people around us are crying because they knew the missionaries who died. Um, you know, it's, it, it's emotional, real fear. And about three years later, I had the opportunity to go to the same town where these missionaries were killed with a team of college students. And it's very eerie. It's the one and only time I've ever had an armed guard. We went to the police station. They knew we were there. We had two, two police officers with an AK-47. And so while we were in the schools sharing the gospel with Muslim and Christian students, we had two police officers keeping a perimeter. And it's a funny thing, because we live such a, here in the, my life has been so comfortable, <laughs> I've never required an armed guard. And it's a weird thing to look out in the horizon, to look in the bush, so to speak, and say, you know, is somebody going to come? You know, will this be the day when, when God takes me home? I don't know. This is where Rahab's at. I mean, it's not just worried about uh, something that could happen. They are 100% sure that this foreign army is going to come and destroy their city. And everybody's falling apart. They're terrified. I mean, Rahab says we, there's no man with any spirit left in them. They're trembling. I mean, they're relatively safe within the walls of the city. But when you live in a, in a war zone, where if you walk in some parts of our country in the urban areas, right, you start looking behind you, around you, off in the distance and say, am I safe? Or is somebody going to show hostility towards me? And this is what makes Rahab so astounding, because in the midst of this kind of fear, this kind of mistrust, this kind of a real danger, she turns and welcomes her enemies and gives them a friendly welcome. She shows hospitality to the people that she should be afraid of. It's a glimpse of peace in the midst of war. And so this really is the challenge that we're going to see here as we look at Joshua. For people from different tribes, different tongues, different nations, different cultures, different economic backgrounds, I mean, you go down the list for those of us to come and sit down as friends in the midst of a world where we struggle to get along. To actually see each other's humanity. That's why I want you to think about Rahab and the people of Jericho, that they were afraid. To, to see that they are human beings living in a world where chaos seems to be the norm. To love our enemies. And that's the way Jesus would put it. You've heard you should love your neighbors and hate your enemies, but I say to you, you should love your enemies. So I can give you an example. Wendell Berry is a Christian poet, and during the Cold War, he wrote a poem called To a Siberian Woodsman. Right? This Cold War, when Russians and Americans were at war, we didn't like each other. I mean, the, to be a local you know, a loyal patriot, you had to despise the Russians. And Barry writes this poem looking at a picture of a, an, the, an average Russian man, a Siberian woodsman. And he's just reflecting on their common humanity. And he asks this question. I mean, spend some time. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's long. But he spends some time just reflecting that you have children that you delight in. 
you delight in the, the talents that your daughter has. I delight in the talents my son has. And he asked this question, who has invented our hatred? Who is our enmity? Who has prescribed our hatred of each other? Who has armed us against each other with the death of the world? And who has appointed me with such anger that I should desire the burning of your house or the destruction of your children? And then he says, so I long that if we should meet, we should not walk past each other looking at the ground like slaves, sullen under their burdens, but that we would stand, this is the point, that we would stand clear in the gaze of one another. We'd see each other in the midst of hostility. And so that's what I want to ask you this morning is how do we do that? How do we love our enemies? How do we see our enemies as human beings and real enemies? I mean, the Israelites and the Canaanites, they are enemies. They are at war. So how do you do this with people you don't naturally get along with? To, give, to be willing, to, not to just do it because Jesus tells you to, but to want to. Give a friendly welcome in the midst of real fear and real concern. And so we're going to do this by looking at who our enemy is. We're going to look at Rahab's welcome and how that points then to God's welcome. But this question, who is our enemy, that's, that's the, the key to this whole passage. Because I know there's some hard things in here, and we'll talk about them, but how you answer the question of who is my enemy, it's going to shape your ability to, to welcome anyone and everyone into your life. Because right. this is the uncomfortable reality of Rahab. She is, she is, by virtue of being a Canaanite, by virtue of being human, by being a sinner, by being a Gentile, a prostitute, she's God's enemy under a death sentence, and God is sending his people Israel to be the hand of justice to bring down judgment. And the, the, the sword is literally pointed at their city. And the con, you got to remember the Old Testament context. God had promised 400 years ago that, that he would give this land to, his, to Abraham's descendants. And it's going to be after 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And you say, why, wait, why is God going to wait 400 years? Well, because he was waiting for the sins of the Amorites, of these people, the different people groups, to be complete. Which is an amazing thing to say, how patient God is. I'm giving them 400 years to figure it out, but I don't think they're not going to figure it out. There's 400 more years of child sacrifice, of sexual immorality, of violence, of idol worship, of rejection of the God who made them, who loves them, who sustained them who provides rain for, for them and everyone else. And so what's happening is, this is the context of Joshua, God's people, having been freed from Egypt, are coming into their inheritance. God's giving them the promised land. And he's using Israel to be his hand of justice. And Jericho's to be destroyed, to be devoted to destruction. Um, and the best way I can think, think of to understand that phrase, you know, the Old Testament law required for sin a lamb to be destroyed right? to show that sin demands punishment and God is telling Israel that the lamb to be destroyed is Jericho they're going to burn and so we got to deal with this how in the world do you make sense for us as Christians Jesus says love your enemy on the one hand and the same God and don't, don't split it up. It's the same God who says, destroy Jericho. How do you hold those two things together? 
Because in this, this real history, God says, I have enemies and justice demands their death. And I know this is what our culture hates. Because they'll argue, oh, this is why I hate religion. It, it divides us. It causes conflict. It, you got what, two groups of people that are absolutely certain they're right, and so they come and they fight it out to see, you know, might makes right, to see who's going to come out on top. And they'll say religion is a tool to oppress people, and different people, different religions, other races, the poor, the outsiders, uh, the different sexual preferences. Religion isn't a, a force for peace or unity. It's it's a tool for abuse. That's the argument against us. And they would turn to places like this and say, See, look, God is telling a people to, to go to war against another group of people. How can you worship a God like that? And to which I would think we should turn around and say, You're right. Religion does tear people apart. Religion can cause all kinds of hurt and pain. We should be honest about it. Right? That there are ugly parts of our history in, in the church. I mean, we get the crusades thrown at us. It's a complicated mess. But I mean, there are very real instances in history where there's been abuse and oppression. And we should wholeheartedly agree that religion can act like a poison in the human heart. Because religion, at its core, says, God must accept me because of what I do. I'm good. Right, I'm separating. This is different from Christianity. Religion at its core is, God must accept me because I'm good. That God loves me because I'm moral, because I'm from the right place, I look correct. And as soon as you have that seed lodged into the depths of your heart, that I'm good because of what I do, because of what I look like, what, however you finish that statement, that's the seed of oppression. To, to dehumanize somebody else. Because when I think I'm better than somebody else, I can fully justify saying I'm more human than they are. I mean, you should start to hear echoes of of Nazi Germany and, and other horrible places. The question, is this the motivation here in Joshua? Behind the destruction of Jericho, is it God saying, I'm sending my best people to go to war against the, the people of Canaan? You've got to listen to Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is really important. This is one of the, a key, a key place in the Old Testament where God says in Deuteronomy chapter 9, Hear, O Israel, you're going to cross over to the Jordan. You're going to dispossess nations that are bigger than you. You're going to take cities that are great. You're going to take people who are taller and stronger than you. And I want you to know, therefore, that today, that God, who, the one who goes before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He's going to destroy them. But here's the key. Do not say in your heart that because... God has thrust them out before you. It's because I'm great, because of my righteousness. Know, therefore, the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, because you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Did you hear it? This is the battle cry for taking Canaan. Don't you go in and ever think you are better than they are. 
Because your righteousness will put you in the exact same place. And it has put you in the exact same place. You've made me angry because you're a sinner. You're stubborn. Remember what happened in the wilderness? I saved you. You saw my great love, my great power. And you said, you're not, you're not a good God. You don't fight for me. And when I should have been angry and abandoned you, I stayed. That's what God's trying to get them to remember. And so this is the battle cry to go into war. You're just as bad as they are. You deserve this. Go get them. <laughs> but they are not the enemy. The enemy lies in your heart. You're written into the battle plan to take Canaan for God to give his people his inheritance it was a call for humility. Which is completely counterintuitive to how anyone thinks about conflict. Because we go to war because we think we're right and we're better. It's even more explicit in Joshua chapter 6. Israel is getting ready to take Jericho, you remember? And along comes a man with his sword drawn, and Joshua, the, the leader, says, Who are you? Are you for us or against us? Are you, for, are you on their team or our team? And he just says, No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua falls down and worships him. Because this is God, this is the commander of the Lord's army. I believe it's Jesus uh, coming before Christmas. You know, the angel of the Lord, this mysterious figure. But regardless, when Joshua says, who is the enemy, doesn't pick a side. Which is another way of trying to say the line between good and evil isn't between us and them. It's right down the center of the human heart. And God knows that. Right? Who is the enemy? According to the scriptures, it's me. I am my greatest enemy. I take me wherever I go, <laughs> which is a problem for me. As quotes in your, your bulletin and your outline, it's from another time in the Cold War where Alexander Solzhenitsyn, I believe he was, he was at one of the, teaching at one of the Ivy League schools, but he says, if only it were so simple. If only there were evil people out there somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessarily only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the dividing line between good and evil cuts through every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart? That's like an arrow. It hurts. But this is the picture as we come to, to Rahab. It's it's God's enemies who have been saved by grace versus God's enemies. You've got wicked sinners here who God's protected through the blood of the Lamb, Israel, God's people. And you've got the Canaanites who've rejected God who do not have his mercy. You say, that's great. I mean, I can see what you're saying. But what about the commands for violence? And this is what you have to see. Israel is being used as an instrument in God's hands to do justice. And isn't that what we want? I mean, you think about Syria right now. I mean, you remember that haunting picture of the little boy who was pulled out of the ashes, covered in blood. You say, what kind of people would bomb children? And if there is no justice, they just get away scot-free. And what God is sending Israel to do is to bring down justice for a group of people who would put their children into the fire to get their God's approval. 
Just horrible, horrible stuff. Trying to get God to bless them, trying to get God to give them a better harvest. I mean, there's all kinds of other, I mean, the, the core of their sin is that they do not love or accept God their creator. But I mean, if you knew their sins as God knows their sins, you would understand that justice demands to be paid. But then you're left with this uncomfortable question, if I'm the enemy and they're the enemy, where does justice put me? If we come here, this is saying God gets angry at his enemies. He was patient 400 years, but anger is a good thing because anger says God actually cares about what, go, what is going on. And anger in God's world, in the real world, is not just a, a cranky explosion the way we understand it. It's a settled disp- opposition to all that is wrong in this world. And there's an awful lot of wrong in Jericho and the surrounding areas. And if you still think this is unfair and that God is being too harsh, look at the the person who spared, Rahab. Canaanite Rahab, who's mentioned in Jesus' family tree. You've got a whole list of men. This this guy begat this guy, and this guy begat this guy. And in the midst of it, you have Rahab, that, that God wants you to remember that he spares his enemies. He loves his enemies. When she's a prostitute from Jericho, she's on the other side. She's the immoral outsider. She's a prime example of the people that God shouldn't protect. (laughs) And yet he does. And this is the good news, that God is in the business, even in the Old Testament, of turning his enemies into his friends to bring people who hated him, who've who've got all kinds of embarrassing, horrible, immoral things in their background, and says, I want them to be a part of my family, to be a trophy of grace. She's a mother of Jesus. I mean, she wasn't just brought into the outskirts. She was brought all the way in. And so that's the picture we get, that God, you've got to ask, who is our enemy? God says, it's you. Where do you stand when, when my justice comes? Now, let's look at this. How does, how does Rahab respond to this news that God is coming with his justice? The astonishing thing is that she runs towards it. If you hear that God is coming, I mean, this is what she, she gives the credit to God, right? I hear he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he's, he's fighting for you. And she's, she runs towards the God of justice, just the complete opposite of the way we think. If I know justice is coming, if I know I'm about to be caught, I want to hide. You know, I lie, I run, run for the hills. <laughs> I don't want to be found out. I want people to know who I am. That, this is Rahab. Right? And before Rahab ever even knows that she's going to find refuge, she, she decides out of faith in this God, she's going to protect these two spies that have come to her place. Because the king hears that there are spies in the city and Rahab lies to her own people and she has them hidden upstairs and she sends off her own people in a wild goose chase. And so this is how the New Testament wants you to remember Rahab. Listen to Hebrews 11. It says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is what Hebrews is trying to tell you. Look at the hospitality she shows to her enemies. At great risk to herself. If if she gets caught, she's, 
She's dead and all of her family. She's put her life on the line for these people. And her motivation is, your God apparently is the God of everything, the heavens and the earth. And that means even though we're not from the same country, I owe him my allegiance, so I'm coming in faith to him. And I'm going to show you what side I'm on. I'm going to fight for him by protecting the spies. Now we tend to hear that God is God. God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and it's not a big deal. We just kind of yawn and keep moving. But in the ancient world, gods had borders they did not cross. Right? I mean, if, if it was in our world, he would, you know, the God of the Canaanites wouldn't cross Saratoga County. That, his power had limits. And so when Rahab says, Yahweh is God over everything, she's saying he is sovereign. He has a right to tell me what to do by virtue of being my king, my God. He is just. And she's not even arguing about the fact that he's coming to destroy. She's just giving her allegiance to God in the midst of conflict. And that's what happens. She, she runs towards the justice, hoping for mercy, and she actually gets it, and she's spared. That's what we read in Joshua chapter 6. She ends up following through the plan we just read. She hung the scarlet cord. The walls come tumbling down, and her and her family are saved. She loves her enemies. So let me ask you, how, how are you doing? <laughs> this is a hard question. We're not in a war zone, but we have people we don't like. Or maybe it's just me. <laughs> how do you treat them? Would you protect them knowing that, that your life would be at stake? How do you think about people who don't get along with you? I, mean, I can just throw out some words for you. Muslims. Uh, liberals. Democrats. Republicans. Anyone part of the LGBTQ community. Government. You, know, you, you throw out all kinds of jokes too, right? You know, lawyers. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of... Ho Sorry, Cutlers. We love you guys. <laughs> it's not personal. <laughs> but those jokes are there for a reason, right? Because we want to make fun of the people that we don't like. <laughs> we don't want to throw our lot in with them. In the midst of a holy war, God says, look at how this one person on the other team showed an incredible act of love for her enemies. And she said, my life for yours. I want you to flourish as much as I flourish. Our futures are bound together. Come into my life. That is a completely otherworldly way of looking at your enemies. Saying, I want you to thrive. Right. Especially if you're angry and the anger is real. I mean, then, then the, the imprecatory psalms are great when you're mad because it feels like it could be justified. <laughs> and justice, the, the plea for justice is still there, but the command to love your enemies, it's humbling. We need to hear this because in our world, especially in light of the, the election, people are afraid. And they don't know how to look at somebody who looks at the world differently. And the statistics are saying hate crimes have gone up an incredible amount since just since the
the president, who's going to be our president? I mean, in New York State, in our presbytery, in Wellsville, New York, a town of 4,500 people, it's like the poorest part of the whole state. It, it, it made national news because on the back of a, a softball dugout, it said, make America white again with swastikas. We have a PCA church in Wellsville. That's where I, I grew up. I went to high school. People are afraid because they don't know how people on the other side of the aisle are going to look at them. And this is the time where the church has a perfect opportunity to shine and say, we want to be a refuge for all peoples. We're not at war. The church is a place for natural enemies come together and love each other as friends. Rahab, in the midst of war, gives a friendly welcome to her enemies because of her faith. And I love the way God does this because he's always picking the wrong people to teach us good lessons, <laughs> right? It's like the Good Samaritan, which the Jews in that day would have heard Jesus saying, the good, the good Nazi, the good murderer. You know, all kinds of horrible racial things were said about the Samaritans. You wouldn't, you wouldn't praise them. And yet here's Rahab, the prostitute. She's unclean. She's an outsider. Everything about her says she, she shouldn't be welcomed into the worship of God. And God says, I want to use her to teach my people that my plan of redemption is more than just one particular tribe. My intentions are global, international, all tribes, all tongues, all walks of life. You know, you know who Rahab would be in our day, just to push this so you can be a little more uncomfortable? <laughs> She'd be a non-white, urban, possibly lesbian, social justice warrior. Somebody you wouldn't find willingly coming to church. And God says, I want to take somebody like that and teach you how to be hospitable. Right? Would you welcome her? Would you love her? Would you have her over to eat, eat a meal with your kids? Would you protect her if your life was on the line, if your reputation was at stake? Would you turn and say, my life is for you? And that, that's, that's the, call, the heavy call that this passage puts on us. Because Jesus says, what good is it if you love the people like you? Everybody lives that way. That's the easy way out. If you want to be like God, if you want to be like your Father in heaven, love and befriend somebody different than you. How does God do it? Jesus' example, he provides rain for the just and unjust every day. He sustains their life. You have clothing, shelter, food, given to people every day who have no desire to acknowledge the God who made them. And God, as a good father, continues to meet their needs, continues to love them, continues to fight for them, and to work out history to give them opportunities to hear the gospel. Out of love, God provides for his enemies. So do you want to be like God? Jesus says, this is, this is the bar. Rahab's one of the examples. Now, this is closing. This is how we're going to close here. You can see this is impossible, right? I mean, you're starting to feel the weight. This is, this is what the Sermon on the Mount's for, is to show you that unless your righteousness, unless your goodness, not just external deeds, but the desires of your heart, unless they match and exceed those of the Pharisees, those who are intensely religious, 
Unless you're perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you'll never measure up. You will be God's enemy. And it sets us up to see that this is the kind of people, us, me, that God welcomes. Because Rahab, in faith, assumes God's going to bring her in, that he loves her. And she just acts out of faith. She has less to go on than we do. How does God protect her? I mean, the, the famous scarlet cord. Because this cord was hanging out the window, her part of the city wall wasn't destroyed and she was protected. And there's nothing magical about the cord or even the color. But one of, it does paint a picture that because this red cord was on the wall, she found safety and protection. And in the Old Testament, the way that was pictured, to how do you receive God's welcome as an enemy, as a sinner? Through the blood of the lamb painted on the doorpost in the Passover. Right. That's what happened in, in Exodus. When Israel's getting ready to leave Egypt, God says, justice is coming. And unless you are covered by the blood of the Lamb, the judgment will fall on you as well. But because they would, in faith, covered the doorpost with the blood, you know, the justice would pass over them. That's what the same picture we have here in Rahab. That she found protection under God's mercy and the scarlet cord points us to how she received it. That she too, as a foreigner, as somebody different, as a sinner, would find refuge in God's kingdom solely by grace. And that's a picture of the gospel, is it not? Right, if I've met the enemy and the enemy is me, <laughs> we need a hope that can fill that, that can cover up that, that weakness, that sin. Because Jesus is the greater Rahab, the outsider who comes to teach us how to welcome and love our enemies. And he doesn't just risk his life by binding him and say, my life for yours. He gives his life. He sheds his blood to give us a friendly welcome so that the justice would pass over us and we'd be unscathed. We'd be protected. I mean, he went even further. Jesus became God's enemy on the cross as he bore all of our unrighteousness, our unwillingness to love those made in the image of God. That's the gospel. So that we could, Jesus became God's enemy so that we could become his friends. That while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet enemies, Jesus died. He was under no illusions as to what we were like. <laughs> this is what our world needs this Christmas. The peace that the gospel brings tells you that God welcomed you while we were you were yet his enemy. And therefore, out of a deep appreciation and experience of that love, go and do likewise. Learn from Rahab. Open your doors to somebody different. Take a risk. Turn to somebody who would never expect it and say, my life is now for you. you know, give, give a Christmas gift to somebody that you would rather give coal to. Surprise them. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it, right? Give a cup of cold water to your enemies so you can just confound them where they can't make sense of why you're doing what you're doing. 
Because the church, what it's meant to be, what Jesus is doing, is what Matthew 1 teaches us. God is bringing together a dysfunctional family that were formerly his enemies, and he's making them his friends. He has made them his friends in the cross. And the church itself is not made up of natural friends. We have all kinds of different stories here. It's great. We have different nations. We have different tribes. If you start to even... I don't know how many Jews we have here. If anyone who has Jewish ancestry. We are of the nations. Rahab is our heritage. It's good news for us that she was spared. Because God says, my gospel is not for one particular group of people. It sounds exclusive from the outside, but he's saying, come. See it? Outside of the faith, we're all God's enemy. We're all on the same playing field. Inside the faith, inside of grace, we're all his friends. So what do we learn from this? Horizontal peace is only going to be possible if you first have vertical peace. It's always going to be hard to get along because some, we just have bad days. <laughs> we get grumpy. We have very, very real sin. It just comes out, and we hurt one another. But without knowing we have a vertical piece, without the motivation, we'll never reach across the aisle, so to speak, to say, I want to learn. I want to know you. I want to accept you as you are and see what God does with that. Second, you know what this allows us to do? That if you get the love of God, the love of God for you, his enemy, he'll allow you to make deep binding promises to one another. That's what Rahab does with these spies, right? She makes a covenant, really, a promise that says our lives, are, our, our fates are tied together. This is what we do with church membership. We're saying we are bound together not as we wouldn't be friends if it wasn't for Jesus, but because of Jesus has loved us, we are gonna say, My life is now for you. That's phenomenal. So have you received God's hospitality? That's where we're going here as we come to the table. There's a great story of how how this has happened in the past, even in the midst of war. Um, in 1914, in the middle, the midst of World War One, the conflict that everyone thought would be over in just a, a few months. On Christmas Eve in 1914, and all across Europe, on a beautiful moonlit night, there was frost on the ground. There was snow almost everywhere. On the German side, they were singing Christmas carols, as well as on the other side, the Allies. I know I'm messing up my history here, but the British and the Germans, enemies, they're shooting at each other. I mean, they are fighting bloody inch after bloody inch. I mean, it's just trench warfare. There was no point. They weren't getting anywhere. But on Christmas Eve, there was a ceasefire. And this is how one of the um, British officers describes it. He says, first the Germans would sing one of their carols, and then we would sing one of ours until we sang and started up with, O come all ye faithful. And then they started singing it in Latin. Because everybody, the, the Catholic Church, they had one language. And I thought, this is the most extraordinary thing. Two nations singing the same carol in the middle of a war. And the next day, all across the line, I mean, there's debates on how many 
places this happened. They were exchanging gifts, sharing cigarettes, sharing clothes, sharing food, playing soccer together. The priests had the opportunity to stand up and say, who is this person that's binding us together? This is Joy Noel, a French movie. You should watch it. And he's, he preaches the sermon of his life to say, the Prince of Peace brings natural enemies together. I pray you would experience that, that kind of shocking welcome in Christ. And do the same for our neighbors. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message of Christmas, that it's deeply applicable in, in the worst human circumstances. And I pray that you would, the Prince of Peace would give peace to our hearts and that you would use our time here at the table to feed our souls, to motivate us to love our enemies, to, to show surprising hospitality to people so that they would see the shocking hospitality you, you give us. So thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.